What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney David Baldacci is a global number 1 best-selling author His career started with Absolute Power which was adapted into a major motion picture starring Clint Eastwood His books are published in over 45 languages and in more than 80 countries over 110 million copies are in print his works have been adapted for both feature film and television. He is also the co-founder, along with his wife, of the Wish You Well Foundation, which supports literacy efforts across America. On this episode, David discusses his creative process and his journey. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I'm wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. David Baldacci, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Doing fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. No, of course. I mean, it's the day before the release of your latest book, which is the conclusion of the Vega Jane series titled The Stars Below. What's planned for tomorrow? Yeah, we. Um, I'm doing the satellite tours today. I'm doing a TV satellite tour tomorrow. Um, the publisher's doing, you know, events and publicity across the country. Um, so it's kind of exciting. This is the final book in the series, and you know, it's kind of a bittersweet moment. I I, I loved writing the book, and and the series and the characters, and now are you sort of letting it go? But um, it's going to be interesting to see how people react mm-hmm. to it. Yeah, no, you mentioned the bittersweet moment. I'm interested. I mean, the day of the release, is that a a big game type event, almost like an athlete entering a a playoff game? Or is it just kind of more subtle and like you mentioned, bittersweet? Yeah, you know, it it can be both. I've had sort of experienced it both ways. Um, With this one, 
I think I've been with the series such a long time and to say goodbye to it because it's my first, you know, uh, fantasy series that I've ever written. So it was very special to me in that regard. Um, I do kind of feel like uh, I'm, you know, readying for a big event. Um, and um, but I'm, I'm excited to see how people react to it because you know it was a lot of work doing this series, and now you're bringing a million threads together that you put together in the first three novels and bring them all to fruition and conclusion in this one. So it was a lot of stuff to keep straight and uh, a lot of balls juggling in the air, but it was a lot of fun doing it too. Yeah, when you first came up with the idea for this series, did you have that final map in place and understand what you wanted to happen at the end, or do you kind of go go along as each book progresses? Yeah, I had no idea what I was going to do. I had no idea books it was going to be back then. It could have been, you know, anywhere from four to ten. <laughs> so about halfway through the series, I sort of formulated what I wanted to do going forward. After the third one was written, I knew that it would take one more book and only one more book to sort of bring it to conclusion. Um, but it was a, it was a journey of exploration for me and discovery as well. Um, I didn't have everything mapped out, and the characters grew along with me, and I thought of new things along the way. A lot of it was spontaneous. Some of it was, you know, driven by research and, and thought. Some of it, where I sat down and started to write a sentence and changed the perspective and the direction of the novel. So it's kind of it's kind of weird. There's no set rules about how to do this. I just did an event with John Grisham at a, at a book event for a fundraiser, and we were getting taken questions. And he and I are diametrically opposed on how to write. He he re- he he outlines everything from beginning to end and knows the ending before he ever starts writing. I never know the ending. We both kid each other about that, but it just shows that writers can approach their craft from many different ways. Yeah, no, I mean, you've got a an interesting way to go about writing, and it's actually one of the reasons you're one of the most requested guests we've had on this show, because so many of the creatives we had heard about your process, how you write, so they really want to learn more about that. We're going to get into that. But on what got you there, we have to hear a little bit more about the journey. So your first book, Absolute Power, came out in 1996. How'd you first get into writing? You know, I've been writing since I was a kid back in Richmond, Virginia, and I started writing in a journal that my mom gave me when I was in elementary school. Um, and I progressed on to writing short stories and trying to get those published when I was in high school and college. Then I tried my hand at writing screenplays when I was practicing law. Um, had limited success with that. Uh, and I had an idea for uh, a novel, a thriller set in D.C. with a president and a mistress and a cover-up and the Secret Service. I was working and practicing law in Washington, D.C. at the time, and my law office was near the White House. And I would walk by and sometimes see the motorcade and, you know, the, the house and the Secret Service agents. And this idea came to me. So I was practicing law. I, I wrote late at night. I spent three years writing Absolute Power, uh, which I thought was a really good story. I had no idea if it was going to be good enough to be published. I sent it out to a number of agents and hoping that one of them would take it up. And all of them wanted to represent me. And I went to New York and it was kind of a very surreal moment. And I picked the agent um, then that I still have today. Um, and then my life changed dramatically. I, I like telling people I was an overnight success. It just took me 6,000 nights to get there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, I'm so fascinated. So you're, you're spending all these late night hours writing. What was the end game? Did you just enjoy the process or were you really hoping that this would turn into a career? Well, I certainly was hoping that I would be able to make a living writing. I had very modest ambitions. I was hoping maybe it would sell enough that I could maybe practice only half time you know, a part-time as, as a lawyer, I'm eventually in a number of books down the road, become a full-time writer. Um, but really at that point, I, you know, I wouldn't, I would run down the stairs to my little cubby hole in the, in the townhouse we lived in in Virginia at night after the, my wife and the kids were in bed. 
um, because I, that was my time to write. You know, during the day, I was paid to write other stuff. You know, as a lawyer, what my clients wanted me to work on at night, that was my time to write what I wanted to write. So I literally would run down the stairs and jump in front of my big, you know, big butted computer. I don't even know what I had back then. I, I know I first started writing on an IBM Selectric. Um, and then you'd go to a, you know, a computer that would take you like three days to spell check a novel. <laughs> it was one of those things. The screen was like six inches uh, wide. Um, so it was, it, I, I love writing, you know, and I, I remember at the event with, with John, we were talking about what motivates us. And I think at the end of the day, when you been successful and you sold all these books and I don't have to write anymore. I could just retire. Um, but I could not imagine my day being filled with anything other than coming up with stories. That's what motivates me, you know, from the time I get up to the time I go to bed. 130 million books sold later. I think your work has spoken for itself. A few minutes ago, we were talking about what tomorrow is like uh, launching your latest book. I'm so interested. What's the day like in 1996 when your first book comes out? Is that a big celebration for you? It was a big celebration. I was on the Today Show. I think I was being interviewed by Katie Cork. Um, and I never imagined myself being on the Today Show for any reason whatsoever, uh, either legally or criminally. <laughs> you know, so um, that was a blast. It was like I was on every TV show, every radio program. I was on all the newspapers. My People back at my law firm who had no idea I was even writing all those years were just stunned. And I remember being on one TV interview for the, in the D.C. area, and um, somebody asked me about the film rights and uh, for the novel. And I, I sort of interrupted her, and I said, I've always wanted to say this as a lawyer. I've always wanted to say this. And I said, my attorney is handling that. <laughs> You know, and they told me later, my law firm, all the like 150 lawyers are watching me on the television back at the law firm, and they all broke out in a cheer. <laughs> I'm sure they all felt the same way. <laughs> you, you've got a great story about uh, one of the senior law partners and, and the book, How to Write Well and How It Changed Your Life. Do you remember the story at all? Yeah, I, I do. He was a, he was a very detail-oriented, uh, obsessed person, and he grilled me because I'd written a memo to him about a phone conversation I had with someone, and I described it as having a verbal representation for someone about a certain fact about a deal we were doing. And he brought me to the office and really grilled me because I had not been precise. You know, a verbal representation, verbal could mean either spoken words or a grunt like a monkey. Uh, and he said, you didn't receive a verbal representation, you received an oral representation. I don't tolerate imprecision in my attorneys. Don't ever let that happen again. So I was like, okay, well, this is the Twilight Zone. Um, but he was a senior partner, so I went back to my office, and I just forgot about it until he sent me two items in the mail that day, inner office mail. It was a placard that he had taken a page from a book and had blown it up, and it said, you know, how to how to tell the difference between oral and verbal. And he had these bullet points, right? And then he sent me a book, and the book was How to Write Well. And I thought, well, that's a little bit of an overkill. Um, and... You know, the next week, absolute power sold. And it was in all the papers, the Wall Street Journal, front page, all this stuff. And I went to New York, signed a publishing deal. I went back to D.C. in my office. That book was still sitting on my desk. And I thought to myself, you know, I'll never have another chance like this in my whole life. So picked the book up, went to his office, knocked on the door, walked in. He knew what had happened with me. He knew I probably wasn't going to be there much longer. With as much sincerity as I could muster, I held the book up and said, I just want you to know how much this book has changed my life. <laughs> Oh, that is a fantastic story. I'm surprised. So the next day, you didn't walk into the office and just quit and 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 right there. Well, I actually, we, my partner, old partner, and I had just joined the firm 
maybe two months before. So nobody even knew who I was at this firm. We'd gone from a small firm to this gigantic firm. And we were going over there to start a new division, a new department, a new practice over there for them. And so I stayed on for nearly a year um, while I was going through the whole process of the first novel, writing my second one. And then I got to the point where... You know, I'd cut my hours back. I was writing, you know, I was working four days a week, then three days a week, then two days a week. And finally, I thought, I can't do both. This is crazy. So I went in and resigned. You know, I told my partner first. I said, you know, I think I'm going to have to hang up my shingle. I'm sorry. And his response was like, you know, if it had been me, I would have faxed in my resignation on day one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I would have expected you walked in guns blazing and you're out of there, but not the case at all. (laughs) So why didn't you tell anyone you were writing during all these years? Well, it's a very personal thing for me, very private, and I had no news. I mean, I know lots of people, you know, say they're writing stuff, and I didn't want to be one of the ones, oh, I'm writing a book, I'm writing a book, and I just had nothing to tell people. There was no no great news about it, and so we had a scramble when the book sold. We had a scramble running around telling our best friends, some of my relatives, my in-laws. They had no idea I'd been writing, Um, so it was really a surreal moment in many respects. Um, but for me, it was my, my writing is just a very personal, private thing and not something I've really shared with a lot of people. You mentioned it's personal, it's private. Was it a skill you really honed in and practiced on? Absolutely. I mean, as a, as a lawyer, you know, my only tools in my, my quiver were word, you know, the briefs that I wrote, the oral arguments that I gave, I was telling a story, you know, the, in a trial that each side has the same set of facts, it's called the trial record. So how do you come up to two diametrically opposed, you know, views on what a case might represent? Well, you take those facts and you sort of massage them in a way that best represents the interest of your client. You tell a different story than the other side, and you try to make it so compelling that the judge or the jury will believe your side of the facts, your idea of what the story is, rather than the other side's. So I had that training behind me as well, but I just wrote a lot. I mean, I've been writing since I was in elementary school. Everything you could possibly write, you know, short stories, novellas, teleplays, screenplays, novels. I had done it all, and it's a craft, and you never master it. You're an apprentice for life. Uh, but the only way you get better is to continually do it over and over again, and I certainly did that. And every writer you will talk to will have sort of the same sort of story. There's no writer that hits it out of the gate the first time. There aren't many 17-year-old best-selling writers because it takes some maturity. It takes some time. It takes some effort to build that craft. Do you think you would have experienced the success you currently have if you never became a lawyer? I don't know. That's a really good question because so much of my life, I was a political science major in college. So all I did was I read a lot of books. I wrote a lot of papers. I gave a lot of thought to what I wanted to put down, like the arguments I wanted to address and how I wanted to tell certain stories. Um, so I think my whole life has really been built around books. I was a huge reader uh, as a young kid. And I think that's very important. A lot of writers will tell you the same thing, that they read a lot and they wanted to create stories because they loved reading them themselves. Um, so I think my life would have probably wouldn't turn out the same regardless of whether I was a lawyer or not, but I certainly think being a lawyer and as a lawyer, I would work on, you know, major projects for years at a time. So the idea of spending years of my life writing a novel was not daunting to me because that's really how I'd spent my whole professional life anyway. Oh, that's such an interesting perspective. You mentioned your love for reading. If you could have only one book on your bookshelf from your childhood or, or even recently, what would that book be? You know, the, the the first book I ever remember reading uh, is called The Magic Squirrel. It was based on a Russian parable, and the book is from the 1930s. And it's a long book. It's not a picture book or anything like that. I remember reading it, you know, when I was seven years old. Um, and I went back and bought a first edition years later because that book represented an important moment for me because that's the most, first moment I can remember being lost in the world created by another. Um, and that's what drives me today. 
um, that I want to keep creating worlds that other people can be lost in. And uh, it may seem like a small thing, but that book was so important to me because I literally felt like I was having withdrawal when I was away from the book. I was at school and couldn't read it. I remember brushing home, running up to my room, grabbing a book, sitting down, falling in love with the story and living in this world someone else had created. Um, and I would have the, you know, the sheer joy of being able to experience. And that's what drives my own life right now. Yeah, no, being lost in the words of another, that's something you've done for millions and millions. And I would love to dive into your actual writing process. I mean, your days are typical for being atypical. You don't have a specific writing routine. Have you always been like this? I know you mentioned you did some screenplays, some short stories. Was it always, hey, when it came to you, you started to write? Yeah, it's I'm I'm a very spontaneous writer. I mean, I do a lot of preparation, a lot of research and all that, but as far as the writing process, it's almost like my tank gets filled up to the top of my head and all of a sudden I realize it's time to sit down and start writing that first page, that first chapter because I have to get it out. It's almost like I'm filling up with something, I'm drowning and I've got to get it out or else I'm not going to survive. And then I write until my tank is empty. You know, I don't write every day, but the days that I do write, I write until I have nothing left to say. I don't stop in the middle of a sentence. I, mean, I remember one writer telling me, yeah, I only write a certain number of words, and I stop in the, even if I stop in the middle of a sentence, I stop, because I know that I'll have something to write the next day. And I, you know, every writer is different, and I respect the decision that person made. But for me, I keep going until there's nothing left in my tank. And the next day, I may have nothing to write about, but I'm going to think about the story in great depth and explore the characters in my mind, take a walk, really drill down into the weeds about what I want to do. And then I sit down again and I'm ready to go because my tank is full. You mentioned thinking about that story in great depth. When you're on one of these long walks, are you playing out the thoughts in your head like a movie? How does this come to you? Yeah, I, I do. I want to I want to go as as far as I can into, you know, if I'm in chapter one, I'd like to know how chapter one is going to end and how I'm going to get to chapter two. But I'm also thinking about how is all this going to come to fruition and conclusion in chapter 63. Um, so what what plot points to why I want to lay early that I know are going to explode later on? I can't think of them all from the very beginning. I don't think anyone can. So it's sort of a very exploratory journey that you're taking. And I remember I, I filmed last year. I guess it'll be out sometime this year. I did a, they, the master class. People asked me to do a, uh, a series for them. Um, they have people from different walks of life, actors and actresses and screenwriters, and they a great list of people. I Robert De Niro and Aaron Sorkin and um, Judy Bloom and lots of people have done these master classes. And I sort of lay out, you know, how I do what I do, and I you know I, took, I went from conception to outline to how outlines work into pages, to how pages work into the actual finished product, how research impacts what I do and how I bring research to bear in my novels and all that. And it was it was great. I had no idea that I could sit down and talk for three days about this, but I nonstop, but I did. And um so it was it was just a terrific experience me sort of outlining for other people what I've just been doing sort of intuitively for a long period of time. Um, and realizing, yeah, there is a lot of stuff that goes into this. I'd never really sat down and put it all together in an organized fashion to convey to other people. So the masterclass allowed me to do that, um, which I think was a good exercise for me as well. Yeah, I have a masterclass subscription. I, I've watched the Andrew Sorkin one, so I can't wait to watch yours. You have a quote I love. So, so bear with me here for a second while I read this, and then we're going to dive into it. As a writer, you can never turn off your passion for the written word and love of a great story. So I watch life, listen intently, and basically drive everyone around me a bit crazy as I absorb my environment. When you're naturally curious, you uncover storylines everywhere. When inspiration hits you, what do the following moments look like? 
I'm, I'm just so interested about that. I mean, here you're talking about, you see things and stories everywhere. So, so when you first get hit with one of these, do you start jotting the notes down? Or are you just keeping them up in your head? How does that process work? I do both. I mean, I keep notebooks, you know, around me all the time. So I'm constantly jotting things down, but I have a pretty good memory as a trial lawyer. You really have to, because you're standing up in front of people and without a whole lot of time to consult your notes. So my memory is pretty good. Um, I do. I, I remember I was on an NPR show. Um, it was a walking tour, um, and we were in um, right across from the White House in Lafayette Park, and we were live, and we were walking along, and the, and the presenter was there with me, and he said, "I heard that you can, you know, look around you and come up with plot ideas." And I said, "Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm very curious, and I see ideas everywhere." He said, "Okay, do it, do it right now for our national audience." <laughs> <laughs> I, I looked across the street at the White House through the, through the fence, and there was a landscaping crew there. And they had, you know, tourists lining up the fence, taking pictures and all that. And I said, well, the guy over there with the camera who's taking a picture of the guy who's planting that tree over there, he's not a tourist, and the guy planting the tree is not really a landscaper. They're both agents for a foreign government. And what they're doing, they're communicating with each other through the camera and the planting of the tree, and that's going to mean something later on. And the guy was like... Well, that's pretty good, <laughs> right off the top of your head. And I later used that, you know, in a, in one of my novels um, because it made sense to me. And so sometimes just the very small observations can mean big things. And the things that people do intrigue me. Everybody has idiosyncrasies in the way they go about their life, the way they talk to people, the way they walk, the way they stand, the way they take a drink. Um, and it speaks volumes about people, whether they're com- competent or inhibited or unsure about their abilities whether they're lying, whether they're telling the truth. Um, and you can tell a lot just by doing two things, watching and listening. And most people don't do enough of that. And, you know, unfortunately, these days, people walk down the streets and they're glued to their smartphone because they're trying to, you know, look at pictures of cats that people posted on Facebook um, instead of, you know, experience life around them and seeing, you know, and I tell people literally, they say, where do you get your ideas? And I said, I'll tell you where I get my ideas. I wake up every morning and I walk out the door. Uh, and so can you, <laughs> if you were so, if you were so moved to actually see what's going on around you and being curious about people, the one attribute I think the writers need to have, you know, is curiosity. Uh, curiosity doesn't kill the cat. It fills up novels. So that's what you need to be. Yeah. Curiosity. That's something a lot of different guests have actually brought up before. I'm interested. How many plot lines do you currently have in your head? How many characters have you kind of developed and are sitting back there for a rainy day? There, there are quite a few. I mean, I'll tell you one. Uh, I have a, I have four books coming out this year. None of them were really planned. I was out on book tour uh, for the Atlee Pine book last year, and I wanted to write a short story. Uh, I love crime noir. I love the 1940s, and I was going to write a short story that maybe the publisher would do as an ebook only. You know, 50 pages, 60 pages, whatever. And I started writing it on book tour in November, and by uh, January, it was a full length, 116,000 word novel. And only because I just fell in love with what I wanted to write about, the the story came easily for me. The, the descriptions I've written books or read books about the forties, watched movies, television. I mean, I, I love that. Some of my favorite movies are The Chinatown, The Big Sleep, and you know the books that were based on those. And it uh, it just hit me, and I was obsessed with it, and put aside everything else I was writing about. Had no idea it was going to be a novel. Had no idea I really was going to do anything like this. Uh, but the story just fell into my lap out of my head. Um, and, and so the publisher loved it and actually asked for a two book deal. So you'll see this character back again, at least in another book, it'll be out in July. Uh, 
But those things, they just come along. It's, it's to show that life, you can plan life as much as possible, and then a surprise happens. And you can do two, one of two things. You can withdraw from it, or you can embrace it. Uh, and I think nine times out of ten, probably the best uh, answer is to embrace it. I have so much respect for you, not only for the words that you put on the paper, but the amount of research you do. And I don't think everyone truly understands the amount of research you do. Can you give a listener a little insights in, into what that process entails for you? Yeah, you know, I'll give an example about um, uh, a book I wrote a couple of years ago called, um, uh, it was a, my, the final book or the last book in the John Puller series, No Man's Land. And a lot of it was set at a place called Fort Monroe, Virginia. It was. Um, it's decommissioned now, but it's near Newport News, Virginia Beach. Um, and I went down there and spent a week of my life walking the entire facility, talking to people, taking hundreds of pages of notes, taking photographs, um, reading everything I could about Fort Monroe, where it came from, what it became, what it is now. Um, literally walking down street after street, going into the houses and uh, viewing pretty much every building they had down there. And from all of that, not only did I gain valuable insight into creating an atmosphere that people could sort of dive into and feel like they were, they were at Fort Monroe with me, including its history, which is it's just incredible history of the place. Um, but maybe all of that research that I spent all that time on, and after the week of research and months reading and putting my notes together and thoughts, out of a hundred and twenty thousand word novel, all of that probably added up to maybe two or 3,000 words in the novel. So not a very big chunk. But whatever, everything that I did write about it had meaning, was significant, was important for the reader's experience, uh, for them to follow the novel and the storylines. Um, and really added a great sense of atmosphere and depth to the story. And some people will say, gee, that's a lot of work for such a little, a small amount. But it's not, the, it's, not just the, it's not the quantity of the words, it's the quality that added to the storytelling experience. And the hardest thing a writer has to do is do all this research and they'll leave most of it out. But you have to. Otherwise, you're going to write a textbook, not a novel. And people are going to get bogged down in the details. They're going to get lost in the weeds. You're going, to, you're going to tell them, you know, in 50 pages, which would have been far more effective to tell them in a half a page. And it takes a lot more work to drill down 50 pages to a half a page, but it's going to be a much better half page than it was in 50. Is number one priority always reader experience? Or are you trying to scratch your own itch with, with what you enjoy first and foremost? It's both. You know, when people say, who do you write for? I say, I write for myself. And that sounds selfish, but I said, if I satisfy myself, I'm going to really please all of you <laughs> because I'm my toughest critic, you know, and my judgment is going to be far harsher. Um, because at the same time, if, if I'm not interested in the material, I'm going to write a book that the reader is not going to be really interested in. If I'm really passionate about it, the passion is going to come through in the words and the prose and the plot and everything else and the characters. And it's going to be a much better experience. Uh, so the reason you get into writing a book should be that you have a driving interest and passion about what you're writing about. Don't write trend books. You know, trend books are where you want to write the next Da Vinci Code or the next Jurassic Park. Too bad. They've already got writers who did those. And you're not really interested. You're just hoping for a film deal. So it's going to be a pretty bad book. Find something you're really interested in, don't know a whole lot about, but would like to know a lot about. Then you go in there and you find out about it. You live it. You you live in that world. You get down in the details and you bring this passion to it. And I, I swear, I swear that passion will rise through in the prose and it'll lift your book out of the slush piles of the book sitting on desk in New York. Getting down into the details, I'm, I'm thinking about your research process. You have a hilarious story taking the Amtrak train up to New York one day and calling a doctor friend of yours to to figure out 
uh, the specifics of part of your book. Do you remember the story at all? Yeah, it was. It was a. He, she. She was a medical examiner at the Bronx Medical Examiner's Office. She was really an expert on poison poisons, and so I had this really great poisoning technique that I wanted to, you know, run by her. And I wanted to do it face to face in her office. She couldn't meet with me when I was in New York. She was going to be going overseas, so I asked her the questions. While I'm sitting at an Amtrak table with two guys across from me. I have no idea who they are. We're just sharing the table. And so I'm talking about murdering this guy and yeah, I'm going to do it and evading the police and the forensics and all that stuff. And that I, and I, I sort of quip with on the phone, I quip by saying, uh, you know, I got to tell you, doc, if I ever, ever have to kill anybody else, I'm going to call you. And then I hung up and finished writing my notes. I looked up both the other guys across from me looking at me like, you know, Oh my God, you know, he's, he's going to kill somebody. And then uh, I guess people, other people have overheard me. And so the Amtrak police showed up and I was detained as a person of interest by the Amtrak police. Uh, interesting day for me. Um, so the, that would, that book was split second. It's the first novel in the King and Maxwell series. So if you look in the acknowledgement section of split second, where I thank people, the last acknowledgement deals with that very situation where I have an apology to any people on the Amtrak Acela train who might have heard me discussing this with people and were probably scared of their wits with my seemingly diabolical intent. And I just apologize to everybody. <laughs> I, I'm sure you could write an entire book about some of these experiences like that. A little while ago, you mentioned you're coming out with four books this year. That's absolutely fascinating to me that, that you're capable of that amount of workload and being able to produce such great quality work. It's a lifelong journey for many authors to be a bestseller in one category. How many different genres are you currently a bestseller in? Well, certainly, you know, I guess in <clears throat> in thrillers and mystery and historical fiction and in fantasy. So I guess, you know, three genres that I've, I've had bestselling experience in. Um, but at the end of the day, they're all stories. You know, and you can label them and put them into a box, but they're all stories at the end of the day. And that's what I think compels me to write. Um, and I think it compels people to read just because human beings innately love stories. It's how our histories were handed down long ago, oral histories from generation to generation. And again, it comes back to picking up a old fashioned book or listening to it or reading it as an ebook, but you're just allowing yourself to be, you know, to spend time with someone else's imagination uh, and you lose yourself in a world that didn't exist before somebody sat down and created it, which is a wonderful thing. And I think we'll always have that so long as we have human beings. Um, and for me, it's, uh, it's been a great, great life and a great way to spend my life. I'm thinking about you exploring a new genre and the framework of how you assess risk with that. W was there risk going into it or were you just excited to tell another story? I, you know, I, I sometimes, um, I, I like to get out of my comfort zone, um, because you can grow complacent as a writer and then that's not a good thing. So to stretch your muscles, is almost like taking on another exercise regimen and you stretch your muscles in a different way. So I had no thought about, gee, what are the publishing concerns or what would my publisher think about if I want to do an historical fiction or if I want to do a fantasy? Um, for me, it's always about what, do I want to tell the story? And the answer is yes. And I just attack it and I go after it, you know, full bore. And then I worry about the publishing details later. Um, and if somebody wants it, that's great. If they don't, then that's great too. I mean, everybody gets rejected and I'm no exception to that rule. Um, so for me, it's not so much about the risk. I've, I've always felt confident that if I have a story that I'm totally obsessed with and I want to write and I want to tell, I feel confident in my abilities to be able to tell that story, regardless of what genre you may put it in, that other people will enjoy it when they're reading it. 
And uh, that's a confidence that I guess I, I built up over the years. I can't say that I've always had that, um, but I feel confident now. After written in all the books that I've written, that I, I'm able, to, I know what I'm doing, and I can pull this off. Because at the end of the day, I, again, I can't stress this enough: a story is a story is a story, no matter what genre you place it in. It has all of the same elements, you know, great characters, compelling narratives, you know, good dialogue that sounds believable plot twists that keep people, you know, on their toes and themes, you know, and information that you want to convey. I like to entertain and inform people with my novels so they maybe have a great story. They go away thinking, well, that was really exciting. But, you know, he talked about this issue that is real and people talking about today. Maybe I'll go find out more about it because, you know, he seemed to sort of highlight it and think it was important. And I love it when readers write to me and say, you know, I'd never really thought about that issue until you highlighted it. Now I've gone out and talked to people about it. I'm thinking more about it because I think it's important too. All of this began because you were lost in a story. And I'm so fortunate because I've had books part of my life throughout my entire life. And you and your wife, Michelle, started the Wish You Well Foundation. Could you share a little bit about that and what you guys do with Wish You Well? We, we've been doing this for about 17 years. And illiteracy is a, is a big problem in this country. Um, people who just don't have you know, strong enough reading abilities to be self-sustaining and empower themselves. So we fund literacy organizations and programs across the country um, of all types, private, public. It really doesn't matter. We get about 5,000 grant requests a year from places all over the United States. We fund as many as we can. We funded programs in pretty much all 50 states and counting over the years. We funded, you know, I think 35 programs last year uh, across probably 24 states. Um, This year we got off to an even better start. Um, I signed letters um, last month um, funding 23 different programs in the first quarter of this year. Uh, so we'll probably best our record last year. We pumped millions of dollars into this because we live in an information age where if you don't have really high cognitive or reading skills, you're lost. You're always going to be left behind. You're never going to be self-sustaining. You're never going to realize your potential. And too many Americans are left behind because of that because of that one fundamental lacking, the ability to read, which is, I equate with the ability to think. And if you can't read, I don't really imagine how you can work your way through complicated issues and questions and come out with, you know, resolution at the end. So our whole focus is to empower as many Americans as possible, regardless of where they came from, regardless of where they live, uh, with the reading skills and cognitive abilities they need to succeed and be self-sustaining, empowering, and reach the potential of life. That's work that's near and dear to my heart. So thank you, both you and your wife, Michelle, for doing that. So you're putting Vega Jane to bed tomorrow. The Stars Below is the book. Where should the listeners go to stay up to date with you? I hope we introduce some more listeners in, into your work. And, and what should they be checking out? Yeah, they can go to davidbalbacci.com. They'll, they'll find out a lot about me, books that I've written, things that I'm involved in. Um, you can follow me on Instagram and also on Twitter and Facebook as well. Uh, there's a lot of good discussions going on on Facebook, and a lot of times I'll pop in and I'll post things on Twitter and let people know what I'm dealing with or working on or ideas that I have or what's coming in the future. So those are good places to keep abreast of me. David Baldacci, thank you for joining us on What Got You There, and best of luck with everything you have going on. Well, it was great. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. Hey, guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. 
They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. You guys know how much I love travel. So I think you're really going to like this next brand. That brand is Globekick. Head to globekick.com, check out what they've got going on, and you can also enter code WGYT to receive 10% off. Globekick makes your travel dreams a reality. They make it easy to discover, plan, and enjoy unforgettable adventures. And you're wondering what some of those adventures are? How about a yoga retreat in Italy? Cage diving with great whites in South Africa? Or their most recent trip was dog sledding and chasing the Northern Lights. Yes, they saw the Northern Lights. I think you guys would love checking them out. So head to globekick.com, enter code WGYT, and you've got 10% off. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.